Welcome to Technology Tangents. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and well, frankly opinionated, but hopefully gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, and what to ignore. Today, as always, we have Jason Goth, our CTO. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Vincent. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Awesome. And we have our favorite guest, frankly, our co-host, if you will, Kevin Erickson. Kevin, welcome. Thank you, Vincent. Glad to be here again. At, at this point, I don't think he's a guest anymore. If you're on like the last five in a row, you're just official. <laughs> All right. It's official. Well, I'm off probation. You guys <laughs> finally are allowing me to be in that? That's awesome. All right. Well, officially, our, our other co-host, Kevin Erickson, then. <laughs> welcome in your new capacity, Kevin. Thank you. Do, does the expectations change? Uh, yeah, and it comes with a raise. We're going to double your current uh, compensation for this. It. So Love zero it. times yep. two will be still zero, but you know, double. Zero. You are a data guy. <laughs> Today, I want to talk about AI and ML. In particular, we had a podcast that we recorded a couple months ago now. And what's funny about that is change, in my experience, change happens slow and then all at once. And I think what we had here is exactly that. So we recorded a podcast a couple months ago talking about all the layoffs happening in AI. Well, we'll recover some of that. We then talked about the implications. And what's amazing is that by the time we got ready to publish this, it was out of date and seemed obvious because, well, some of the stuff that we predicted had already happened by this point. And so today I want to take a lens of a little bit of what's happened over the past, call it six months, where we are over the past month or two now, and what are the implications still more broadly, though? Sound like a plan? Sounds good. All right. So just to recap, remember, end of 2022, that was the start of really the cost of capital implicating a huge number of companies. And what I mean by that is it fundamentally shifted how they thought about business. It shifted their access to net new capital. And as a result, we saw a huge number of companies do layoffs and ultimately fail. And so the question then becomes, effectively back then was, we, we asked this provocative question of like, has AI failed? There was this huge number of startups that premised their entire value prop on leveraging technology, specifically AI or ML, in order to unlock or transform an existing business. So for example, you know, we talked a little bit about how Redfin had shut its home flipping business. This is, of course, you know, about six to eight months after Zillow had done the same. And Redfin had laid off 13% of its staff. Again, finance had a huge number of layoffs. Self-driving had a bunch of those companies either collapsed or got consolidated. Home buying in general, a bunch of these startups had collapsed. Alexa, that had been laid off. A huge chunk of that team had been laid off at AWS. Uh, McDonald's had taken their AI company and then shifted them back out. There's a huge number of changes in this in this domain that really asked the question, was AI really working? When you look at that number of layoffs, the number of companies that had failed, and ultimately the actual <laughs> capital that had been effectively just burned, it was amazing. Again, we had a few numbers, like, the, again, these are dated now, but Aurora, this is the self-driving startup, they had decreased valuation by 81%. So they were valued at $14 million in IPO. Today's valuation was only 2.6. True Simple, Luminar, Validine. I could just keep going. The list is huge, of course. And so this was, this was really the question that we started to wrestle with, is like, had AI actually failed? And so I want to come back to that and just start there again with this lens of a few months ago now. Like, is that true? And if so, like, what had really happened? And so to kick us off, I'll say, I don't think AI had failed. <laughs> I still don't think it is. Of course, that's, that's easy for me to say now with hindsight. But really, I thought it was a question more about how companies had been financed, 
and the cost of capital specifically. So what I mean by that is if you go back to any of our episodes on AI and, and this how to be effective with it, Jason and I have talked extensively about the idea that what you want to do is effectively have a vision of where you want to go, but you need to start with a problem in mind and a problem that's actually solvable with today's technology or just outside the range. You want a couple of bets, a portfolio theory approach, a couple of bets that are longer term, but in general, you need to stay a little bit closer to adjacencies within your business, either core or adjacent to your business. These AI companies that really struggled at the end of 2022 and even the beginning of 2023, they didn't do that. They had really big, audacious, big goals that would transform society as we see it today, but they were going to take 10 years, even at the end of last year, you know, 10 plus years to get to a place where it was truly commercially viable. And in a world where capital is effectively free, when you do the discounted cash flow analysis here, like that all makes perfect sense. We don't actually have to discount future growth by all that or future cash flows by all that much because the cost of capital is, it was effectively free. As you continue to raise interest rates to now five, 6%, it's not 6% yet, but moving towards there, it's a very different question because now there is real cost for that capital and you have to truly discount future cash flows in a way that you haven't historically had to do. And so as the market then tries to reprice this, it becomes increasingly difficult to get the funding that you need to continue with that burn rate historically. So that was at least my first premise of like, that's what's really going on here. It was less an indictment of AI specifically and more an indictment of the lens and the time horizon those that are trying to use AI to solve. That's a really good summary. And maybe we should just start summarizing our previous podcast because we it took us 45 minutes to get to that place last time. So <laughs> that's right. Anything else you'd add to that though, Jason? No, I think that's right. I think there are plenty of AI companies that still exist that are doing things that have a little bit more immediate payback. Well, I think it also goes back to one of the themes that we continue to go back to is this idea of, are you a technology company for building a technology or are you solving a problem as you've Vincent, Vincent, as you mentioned in the summary. And I think that's a, interesting element of how does that play into economic viability dcf i think the other element that we haven't discussed but we have previously is where is it in terms of favored industry type approach where is there potentially government backing you think in ev technology and whatnot and so i actually think it's very helpful for us to get back to remember that companies do exist to solve a problem they do exist to create money and uh, and through that becomes future growth and innovation so although painful in the moment uh, i'm a big a believer that this is a more healthier and more sustainable place for us to be in. So. Yeah, I think it's been commented by other observers in the marketplace that if you go back in time over the past couple of recessions, actually the biggest, most successful startups actually came out of an era where capital was tight. It just forces you to think a little bit more short term. It forces you to get product market fit faster and then iterate from there. So that aligns very well with what you're saying there, Kevin. The thing I'll note it here is that AI is a funny it's a funny thing. It's, of course, been around since the you know, 50s, 60s. It went through a whole hype cycle, of course, with it beating the world-famous chess player. In fact, it was probably a bug. I don't know if you have the whole backstory here, but it's probably a bug that actually led to the AI winning in this case. But it, it created this hype cycle that was quite remarkable. We thought, wow, these things are amazing. If it can beat Kasparov, it's going to change the entire world. And so there's a lot of focus on designing these expert systems, ultimately. Then, of course... That didn't really go anywhere. That approach didn't actually work the way we thought it was. And again, I think that there was a, there's this really heavy emphasis on doing fundamental R&D and without a problem in mind per se. 
we just said, hey, we're going to figure out how to solve and build expert systems. And we're going to use fuzzy logic and we're going to use a lot of rules. And that was really the approach with these rule-based systems designed by experts. You know, in the late 80s, there was, again, this sort of new hope of, of things that might come through here, but that ultimately collapsed again. And, you know, we, we have been writing over the past, call it decade, the next iteration of that wave. Again, I think that was probably kicked off most famously by the Jeopardy in what IBM did there with winning Jeopardy and the idea that, wow, these systems are totally different. And then picked and continued with Google and um, Go, for example, and beating all the video games and all of these things. And deep learning was really the unlock here, which again, is not a new technology. It's been around for a long time. What's new is that we have data sets that can inform that. And then more importantly, or equally importantly, the processing power to actually go do that calculation at those scales. So that's that's interesting because I think that then informs where we are today and where we left as part of that last episode, which is that perhaps we're entering another winter, if you will. And if you go back and you look at what happened in those winters, what happened, we basically took this approach where we went from really broad R&D and, and trying to solve these general purpose AI type systems or build these general purpose AI systems into something that's much more narrowly focused. The other thing worth noting at the same time is that the definition of AI is sort of a moving goalpost. And so what we would have called amazing and transformative 20 years ago, and oh, that's definitely AI, we would say today, like, that's not AI. And so, you know, for example, ATMs or fraud detection or chatbots or remote capture of checks, like these are things that would have absolutely been AI back in the 80s. Today, we would think, oh, that's just some very simple thing, no big deal. And so we constantly are pushing the bar of like what actually categorized, is categorized as AI. So again, I think it's that combination of AI winter, these cycles, because we go very broad, we get some success, we go very broad again, and then we realize, well, the payback on this isn't going to be short enough, so we get more narrow, and that product market fit becomes the dominant factor. I think there's one other thing that also contributes to that cycle, and that's we hit limitations of current technology. For example, there were plenty of deep learning style projects back in the 70s and 80s, but they were generally abandoned as, oh, well, this is not going to really work because we don't have enough data and we don't have the processing power. And that that has changed and we have exponentially more data due to mobile and cloud and, and all of these other uh, social media and, and the web in general. And we've got GPUs to process these things that are much, much faster and memory is in storage or incredibly cheap. So, you know, it's, it's, created a revival, right, of that deep learning approach. You know, we went from deep learning to more kind of those expert rule base. So when we ran up against those limitations, the the pendulum was back to rule-based systems. And again, those have limitations and we kind of hit the limit of those. And then we swung back now to, to uh, more deep learning type models. I, I do think there will be some limitations now, even in deep learning, the models can only get so big. They can only take so long to train. And so is, is there going to be a swing back to some of the more rule-based systems or expert systems, or is there some type of way to combine them, right, and to, to use both approaches or, or to use a, a additional approach? I wonder if it's not just capital and time horizon, but we are also going to run into limitations due to the technology, you know, of, of deep learning that we're going to have to shift approach a little as well. So, so what you're saying, I think, is, in essence, these new technologies enable a whole net new set of use cases. 
And there's a lot of excitement around these, but we don't really know where the boundaries of what they're actually capable are. And so some people naturally overstretch and the technology can't actually support it. And as we push into that domain, we discover where these boundaries are and what's actually possible. And then as we hit those boundaries, we realize, oh shoot, this isn't going to be solvable. And we have to sort of rewind the tape a little bit, start over, and then wait for the next wave of technology to come through to enable those not new ones. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's much better said than what I just said. (laughs) Well, one thing that I think is interesting, and I'll say this as the resident non-technologist of this technology podcast, is what goes back to what's the use case and what we're trying to work through that. And so, you know, make an argument that what are some of the, the, the primary use cases for AI and deep learning technologies is one's arbitrage. You know, one is how do we make things faster, automation, but go back to the arbitrage. So if we go back to the, the Zillow and the Redfin example, like many ways, I feel like what was trying to happen there is I'm trying to use these technologies and these thinking to be able to make arbitrage decisions faster. Well, at what point do you still have to have human factors that go into it or some type of rationalization? So is it really the technology that is what's limiting? Or is it the fact that we have to understand to the extent that that technology can learn by itself and be able to, or take factors that can't necessarily be predicted? And so, you know, I always go back to what intrigued is that is how do we continue to harness those business problems, whether it be, again, those that I mentioned, predictive analytics would be another one. Vincent, I'm sure you've got a list a mile long of different areas where these technologies play out. And we should start figuring out, well, what are those use case problems that we're trying to solve? So you think a lot of things that are being done around automation, particularly in the energy space or EV space, you know, that is a desire for where you want to go. Is that a problem that today needs to be solved? I don't know. But it's what are those ones that are more real time now that the cost of capital is, is higher and we have to continue to use scarce resources on the specific problems that we can solve in the next couple of years? I do think we are still a little bit in the space where it's, you know, let's build it and they will come, right? And it's we, we have these interesting technologies. You know, right now the biggest one is obviously generative, you know, AI that generates content. GPT and and doll in others that generate things well we're also we're coming at it from the perspective of like wow these things are really cool at generating stuff what could we use that for right as opposed to the here's the actual problem we have and and again I think that there's always some use for I mean we can always find something that is really valuable to use that technology for but I think there are probably a lot of use cases that it's not valuable for there are a lot of other potential uses for AI that need to be looked at, invested in. Like blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so I won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole, not with Jason. The, I guess the question to you then, Kevin, is from a, from a corporate strategy standpoint or an investor standpoint, choosing the lens you want here, how do you actually make investment and in fundamental research that could be the next breakthrough in technology to enable a bunch of new use cases for your business versus prioritizing the very iterative. Because again, I think the, the question or the pushback would be, look, we could have used expert rule-based systems to do anything that AI would do. It just would have taken forever and probably wouldn't have been as good ultimately, but like, you know, it is at least theoretically possible because at the end of the day, they are just rules engines on a bunch of features we don't normally think about or look at or even really understand what they are, but same thing. So how do you, how do you sort of balance those two things? It, it, we we joke with Jason around his love of certain emerging themes. And like for me, it goes back to a similar one, which is a really around what are you trying to do? Who are you? And so if you go back to the companies that we highlighted that failed, 
I think partly what they failed on, and this is not, I'll get to your question in a second, is they failed on the fact that they didn't, I don't think what they were trying to be for the company, they were trying to be a technology company, we're an AI company, instead of no, we're a company that's using AI to solve a problem, and they didn't know what the problem is. And, and you know, the other view from a simplistic view from my cheap seats around what AI is, it's just faster rule-based engines. And I know that I'm insulting a ton of really smart people when I say that, but, but then it goes back to, but it still takes you, if you have that premise and I'm able to make offers faster, do you have all these different elements through that, through by you know, crunching through tons of different inputs, you know, it still has to solve this. When it comes to investments, I'd be asking the question, well, what are we trying to do? We want to sell more. We want to do it faster. We want to reduce our costs. We want to take advantage of this. You're still going back to those fundamental business decisions, what you're trying to do. And then how do you use these technologies as a way to accelerate that? Now, are there going to be some companies and some use cases that are going to be completely unique to this? Sure. But I think for majority of larger firms, I mean, you're trying to use these to actually make it either help you grow uh, through selling more or by doing it more cost effective. And there's just like, if you use fracking and oil and energy as an example, right? I mean, we're using a new technology now, you know, now, now 10, 15 years old, playing in old fields that we're unlocking stuff. Well, I think if you take that analogy when it comes to AI, we're going to continue to go back and find ways to do things faster into places where we were already trying to play. And now we can just do it and we can redeploy different types of capital and different elements. Yeah, I think, I think you have to think about it from two different lenses. One is you're a producer of AI technologies and the other as you are a consumer of it, right? So Google, others produce these AIs, these, you know, whether they be large language models or computer vision models or other things, you know, a company can certainly use those, right? You know, let's take computer vision, right? I can use the computer vision models that exist on, on Google or other platforms to recognize invoices and automate the processing of those. Like that's a very different problem than going and creating the vision model in the first place. And I would say for a lot of, a lot of companies, I think need to be consumers of it. Just like not every company builds database products, right? They, they don't build programming languages. They use those. And I think there's going to be some people that invest in, in building the AIs and, and others that just invest in using them. And I think that's a, it's a really important thing. Because we see some companies, you and I talked to a company yesterday, right, that we won't mention, but that we're trying to build you know, a lot of AI technology internally that really exists out in the market. You know, and it exists trained on data sets that are orders of magnitude larger because they are, have access, you know, the, uh, the technology company has access to much more data than, than a company would have just itself first party data internally. And so, you know, our, our kind of recommendation was then was like, Hey, you just need to, to really think about going out and finding a partner and, and, and integrating some other solution. So that's another thing I would really encourage companies to think about is like, do I need to invest money in building this or do I need to invest money in finding the right one and integrating it? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's a really difficult thing to convince any CIO of, even today. You know, when I when I started out in this gig, I think that AI was a bit of retail therapy, if you will. So the CIO is like, hey, this is a new, cool, sexy thing. I want to get some of that. That'll be really fun for me and my teams. And no doubt everybody within the organization who touched data or did any analysis wanted to be called a data scientist because that was the cool, sexy thing to go do. 
the truth is that these platforms, AWS and GCP and Azure have moved up stacks so fast that it does not make sense for most people. They will invest orders of magnitude, plural, more than you can ever invest to solve these problems on data sets that are bigger than you currently have. And so more than likely, you probably should just use recognition from AWS, for example, or Vertex's solution or whatever, and, and leverage it for your problem. I guess then the question becomes a bit of, if that's, if that's the case, which I think it is oftentimes, like when should you, or should you ever, said differently, should you ever build these models net new yourself? I'll start with the business case, if that's okay, Jason, and you can be thinking about it from the technology, but uh, use another industry example of in really what's the last mile. So it's possible that you know, companies understand, well, what is the last mile, so to speak, language? And so you have to own that. And so if you own that relationship with your customer, what that looks like, where does that make sense for you to build the unique uh, knowledge that's unique to your industry or to your special offering that you need to have, and then you know where to plug in. So again, old concepts here, but I think we get confused. And I think, and I think it goes back to what do our employees want to do? What do we want to do? What do we think is competitive advantage? And, you know, the three of us are brought together because we do professional services and, you know, we're also technologists in what we do. And I think it's the classical element. What do, why do we exist? We exist to help our clients solve problems. We do that through technologists. We tell our young technologists that they're technologists though, and they want to go build stuff. And so it's a, it's a fundamentally mind shift to why you exist. And I think that's where I would continue to advise companies to go understand why you're there and where you play. And, you know, you can create technologies. And if you happen to do that, and you can hold that to your own advantage, or ultimately, you can spin that or you find those partners. And I think that's what's been so interesting from the, the evolution of the cloud and data space is that we are completely integrated now in just even more ways. And we've always had that it's just it's just in different spots that were at once once before. And I think, you know, so how do you continue to know why why you exist and where you play and try to really understand what your value is and not be afraid of being fully integrated, I think, is part of the solution. Well, I would say the answer is no. Uh, don't try it in terms of some general AI. That That is somewhat the domain of, I think, people that can spend billions uh, on research and fundamental research. Now, very pointed, you know, purpose-driven AIs, the answer is maybe. I think if you, and maybe there's a third option, which is somewhat of a partnership. So if you have a very large data set that let's say only you have, then there's a lot of value that you can unlock in that. Now, you may need to partner with someone uh, to do that. A great example would be telcos, right? Telcos have an enormous amount of data, calling data on who calls who, when and where. Well, now right. surfing data too. Surfing data, yeah, you know, telcos have- App data. Yeah, lots and lots of data. So if you're a really big you know, internet service provider, telco, mobile phone carrier, well, maybe you have the data sets that uh, no one else has that you could do some type of, hey, I, I know uh, one that, I've worked with in the past a lot. They use a lot of that data to determine kind of di distributed denial of service attacks. I feel like a very good use uh, of all of that um, service provider data that, that may not have. So maybe, now maybe you have a lot of data, let's say airlines for as another example, or hotels have a lot of booking data. 
you know, 40, 50 years worth of airline booking data or hotel booking data. Well, that may be useful on its own, but it may need to be work, you know, done in combination with someone else, right? Partner with someone that has some, you know, maybe hotels and airlines and car rental companies could partner together some type of consortium, travel consortium that would then have the data sets to do some really interesting things for, for that limited domain. And so I, my answer is a little more nuanced that maybe, you know, general AI, no, but really purpose-driven look at partnering with those in your ecosystem or maybe with someone, you know, a, a larger technology company like, like a Google or an Amazon. And there might be something really interesting you could come up with there. If you're not one of those, right. If you're, a regional bank or a southeastern retailer, right, uh, or something like that, then I would say probably your best bet is to look at third parties that have those features available. Yeah, I think my answer is a combination of both of yours. I think you're both exactly right. I would say if this is if the thing you're going to build the AI for is not truly a differentiated competitive advantage for your company it almost never makes sense to go to it. Remember, these systems are expensive. There, There is no magic bean, if you will, that you can just go, oh, I'm going to deploy this model and have the answer. This is the high interest credit card of tech debt, right? So these things have real costs associated with them, both on development and then maintenance of them. They have to be retrained constantly and having new data fed to them and relabeled and all of that. So that's, that, that's criteria one, if you will. I think the second part of that litmus test is closer to what you said, Jason, which is really... If you do not have, I mean, the, I'll put it this way, the dream state where you're building these systems is that you can provide an outcome-based service to some other customer based off aggregated customer data of your own. And ideally, that aggregated customer data covers the vast majority of the market. So for example, GE has sales jet engines. They make a lot of money doing that. But actually, the engines themselves, they make very little money. on. In fact, they might lose money on the GE engines themselves. But what they get is all of the maintenance contracts afterwards. So effectively, what GE has done is, is turned their business model into you know thrust as a service. I'm going to give you this many pounds of thrust with this kind of reliability in exchange for a fee. And they can do that better than any airline can do it themselves because they have the data from all airlines who use their engines across all different routes, across all different maintenance plans. And so they can just be more efficient by building a very bespoke model to solve this one thing and give the outcome back to their customers. And I think if you can do that, quite quite valuable and it's worth the cost and the effort. That's interesting, Vincent. Shameless plug for the Cordera data monetization uh, <laughs> offering that we do. Yeah, and so that, okay, fine. Yeah, we don't normally do this, but like that, that is something that, by the way, that we do spend a lot of time helping our clients think about like what are your truly differentiated offerings on your data to help you find those things. Yeah. One thing that's, in, this is, slightly different riff on that but one thing that's really fun when one of the beautiful things about hindsight is that you can analyze companies and where they've gone and what they've done so you look at i think amazon's a pretty interesting example to me would amazon be amazon as we know them if they didn't have aws and would aws exist if a company would have set out to actually create aws or was it that was the need for them to become amazon and i think and that's where you have an example of they created an offering in a market that was there solely to solve what they were trying to do which was the retail side of their business and so 
Now that may be, again, that's what and Google's got a ton of those different examples. A lot of the different technology companies do. You know, they went to solve their own problems. So going back to one of your earlier questions, it's like, well, when do I know I'm trying to solve that? I would love to have someone, and I'm sure this is documented places, like what did a, when did AWS try to do what they became versus that was just simply the natural evolution of the rabbit trail that they were on. And so then you go back to individual companies and where do you play that same scenario out is what are you trying to be? Where does it work through it? You may have those happy coincidences, the bug that helps you win a chess match per se, but like different elements that you have to go after and try to, how do you think about that, your strategy? And sometimes you're going to be lucky. Sometimes you're going to make investments. But one thing that is true is that you do have to make investments and you have to be willing to try. And one of the else that's kind of interesting today in both companies and society writ large is our willingness to actually fail and, and willingness to how, when that happens, how do you know when you fail, when do you cut bait? You know, those are other themes that are fun for us to explore because I think we don't, we are risk tolerance of working through that is, is, is I think at this point more than any time, in at least my professional life, uh, challenged, you know, and whether, you know, even as we sit in today and we don't know if we were going to go into a recession or not, we don't know what's going to happen with interest rates. Like that was very common in my first half of my career, but for the last half it has not been. And so how do you operate in that? And so... You know, the good news is it all comes back again, but uh, you have to remind ourselves of that. I think that Amazon is a great example. And by the way, the, if you want to learn more about the story, it's in that book, The Everything Store. They actually talk about that moment in the offset they had where they had this very contentious debate about should they spin it off into a separate company. But what's interesting about that is they were obviously successful, and Google's been pretty successful with GCP and coming out of their search engine business, and Microsoft the same, coming out of their being an office engine, right? Like building that out for Azure. IBM, on the other hand, not so successful. I mean, remember, they're the ones who, from my perspective, with Watson and the Jeopardy thing, were really the pioneers in Forefront. They were the coolest place to be. They got all of the really sexy, interesting contracts with hospitals and healthcare providers to go do Watson Health, et cetera. And that was largely a failed venture. Why? Maybe it's because of what you just said. They were building it for the sake of building it more than solving an internal problem that they really understood deeply. I mean, they were not a healthcare business. They had consulting, no doubt. But they're not a healthcare business. They weren't solving their own problems. They're trying to solve other people's in the abstract. Yeah. Or they, that technology and that approach would have killed what was making them money at the time, which I think is another element where that... The innovators still more effectively. Yep. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So I want to I wanna fast forward the tape now uh, to more modern day. And what we've seen over the, over the past few months is that really the... A, a specific class of AI, so not AI in general. I think self-driving is still out there and struggling a little bit, and some of the computer vision stuff is out there and struggling a little bit. But chat in particular, it was large language models specifically and chat GPT being at the front of this, or, or, or GPT-3 and 4, whatever, open AI, let's call it the open AI solution here, being at the forefront has really reawakened a lot of energy in the market to the tune of almost a billion dollars being spent from VCs and in investing in these companies over an incredibly short amount of time in a market, in a cycle that's very difficult to raise money in. And so I guess the, the first question is, look, when we, a year ago, we started playing around with GPT-3 when it first became available and we were in the private beta and we were developing some solutions for some clients on this thing. But it was really a very difficult sell conceptually for clients to understand like, what is this thing? How do you use it? And today you could go to any 12 or 13 year old and they've already done a huge amount with ChatGPT specifically, which is again powered by the same engine we've been using for a while now, but a hugely different response in the marketplace. And I guess the first question is, 
you know, what, what's your speculation as to what was so successful about the revival of or the, the excitement of chat GPT versus the large language models, you know, not even six months before that, Jason? Well, I have a little bit of maybe a strange opinion on this. I, I, I don't think this is anything technical or business related. Well, maybe it is, but it, for me, it's when they put the chat interface on top of it because that turned it into more of a game, a lot like TikTok or Instagram. It was a lot of, you know, younger, let's say Gen Z users who all of a sudden could treat it just like, you know, their Instagram feed or anything else and try to make it, you know, say stupid things and trick it or do, you know, see if it would answer their homework problem. And it became somewhat of a viral social media like effect. And, and I think that drove a lot of hype and a lot of thoughts around, well, what could we then actually use this for? You know, in, in since they, they crowdsourced the Gen Z for I business ideas out of the thing. Right. And so I think that that, that interface, you know, back to the, our opinion always that customer experience on these things matters. You, you think about using them from a customer of the, the solutions perspective and how it integrates. That's a perfect example of that, right? When it had an API, and gave the same answers, no one cared, right? But when it was cool and fun and you could post it on your TikTok, all of a sudden the, the interest took off. Anything from a strategy or, or product market fit perspective you want to add here, Kevin? No, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling a little bit in my mind. So, Jason, is the gamification of blockchain crypto? <laughs> Why do y'all keep wanting to troll me with blockchain? <laughs> We we're trying to give you the uh, we're trying we to give you the that. opportunity to say that I was right. You were giving you the chance here, Jason. I mean, blockchain is. It was funny, you know. We talked about this from CES. It just it it's really just disappeared from the zeitgeist so quickly from being really really on top of every client's thankfully, mind. Thankfully, I agree. There's there's I think some good sobriety that was realized with with some of this in the crypto. And again, um, you sent me a funny a funny text the other day showing the image of Forbes magazine cover people. So again, like we thought this was the next big thing and it turns out maybe not. Yeah. So there was a great, I don't know where I found it, but it had like four mag Forbes magazine covers and people they were of the year. people of the year. And it was Sam Bankman freed Elizabeth Holmes, Silicon Valley bank was on, was on the cover. And uh, who was the fourth Vincent? Adam Newman. From uh, oh yeah, Adam Newman from WeWork, and so I just sent it. I just sent it to uh, Vincent and said, like, maybe Forbes needs to have a little bit better filter on who they put on the cover. Yeah, America's best bang, twenty twenty three. Yeah, that's exactly right. SVP. Okay, so so anyway, my point there is, I think I I agree. I think it was about the interface. I think it was about this idea that APIs are too hard for the average person still. And having something that you can actually interact with this model, and it, I think it lended itself in a very natural way to conversation. I mean, mm -hmm. it was text-based; it's language-based, so and it it showed people what was possible, you mm -hmm. know, in a way that is maybe hard to see with an API. More so than my decks did, I guess right. is the headline of, well, of what you could do. They could experience it themselves. And to your point, you know, they they effectively did crowdsource a huge number of app potential applications that we're now seeing come out, especially with the plugins thing recently. Go ahead. Well, let's just say that also you're seeing some use cases that were were known, but like 
you know, how many wire reports are written now by a person versus versus chat, you know, and all those different elements. And I think a lot of that was happening behind the scenes, but they're just That's being right. much more prescriptive. They're actually just, they're acknowledging what was already happening, you know. Well, yeah, BuzzFeed, I don't know if you saw this, just Wall Street Journal, Wall Street Journal article just came out saying that BuzzFeed admitted that some portion of all their articles were written by AI. You know, we've seen this for a, maybe five years ago. MLB stuff had come out and they said, hey, a bunch of our summarizations written by AI. And that was kind of an interesting thing at the time. But to your point, it was happening all behind the scenes. It was, yeah. And it's been interesting. Yeah, sometimes, so now it's kind of been a little bit of a parlor game for me. Maybe I need to find some new hobbies. But uh, I've been like reading the recaps of different games and figuring out like the byline, who, who, who is it and what are they saying? Because it is, and it's such a formulaic thing. So you take that application then. Well, where are the other areas where that same type of dynamic exists, whether it be obviously in customer service where it's being used in different elements and you come back to, well, what's the, you know, what's the use case where again, go back to top line, bottom line, I'm going to continue to run to those themes, my version of blockchain and how that play out. And I think that would be a good use for us to see. And so it's possible that with, we're starting to see whether it be due to unemployment, other factors that were making it, that it made more sense for these technologies to come in and replace some of those those functions. Yeah, I think that's right. And that leads us to the last thing I want to talk about today, which is, okay, so large language models have obviously taken off. We've done three or four episodes now around, around these things and what they are. I guess as we think now with this lens of what happened in the previous winters, if you will, this collapse of a bunch of AI companies just six months ago, call it, and this now resurgence or takeoff of these, how do companies, especially with cost of capital being so so high and, and it just being available so scarcely available, how do companies position themselves to do very well in this in this domain? Should they all go rebuild, you know, a large language model? I think we've already said it very clearly, no. <laughs> um, should they leverage it? Should they do something with it? Maybe. And I guess that my, I'm curious from your guys' perspective, how would you approach it as a, an executive company today? There's one more thing I would add to the, the list too, which I think is how much of the layoffs that we're seeing in different technology companies are happening because the technologies that they were working on are failing. There's not a market for them or there's just, there was so much pent up demand. People were, didn't know what was going to happen. We overhired, we overinvested, and it was literally, we're seeing a resettling back. Yeah, that's one of the elements that's intriguing to me is interest rates continue to rise. Cost, cost of capital goes back. You know, we're, we're settling now to what the, maybe the new normal is in terms of what should be. And so step one for would still be for those, the companies that made huge human capital investments, it's probably just going back and saying, Hey, do we have the right team, right size working through that for what we think it is. And then um, it's going back through again, the traditional questions like, you know, what is it? What do we, what are we trying to solve? What are we trying to do? Do we build? Do we buy? Do we invest? Do we partner? And I think those are timeless in terms of how I would you know, work through it. You think about, how many questions that we help our clients with is the same business question, but we really changed either the, the language of what it is or, oh, I used to have this with a CIO. Well, now I have that conversation with a CMO. Now I have that with the chief data officer. It's the same conversation. It's just a different person with a different function. And how is that going to play out? So I'm completely avoiding your question around how we should invest, but I do think companies should start with, again, continuing just to kind of resettle a bit maybe take a pause, maybe again, having cost of capital, we're not we're, uh, go up and we're not running so hot and then re just understand your position and what you're trying to do. And then how do you start making the right human capital technology product investments for you to meet your needs? Well, here I'll ask you a very, a very pointed provocative question then potentially, which is they just, so 
OpenAI has now increased their functionality on, on ChatGPT and they have the ability to build a plugin. So now ChatGPT can do exactly what we predicted they ought to be able to do at some point, which is have a bunch of other modules that it can call, a bit like the Alexa or the Siri model back in the day, and actually go do that. So you could ask it like, hey, where are the best vacation spots in Switzerland? And then it could go give you a response like it always has and said, hey, why don't you book that for me? And it can call Expedia and book that for you. Or it could ask you, you know, like, what what is the conversion of this? It could call Wolfram Alpha and do the conversion of that for you or et cetera. So you can start having all these things stringed together in a pretty unique way. You said earlier, one of the things that you have to be cognizant of is not getting disintermediated from your customers. Well, guess what's going to happen if you now have uh, a plugin in the natural interfaces chat GPT and not your website or not your app directly? It's something else entirely. Is this the right direction to move? Or do you think, it, it, because you have to, because everybody else is going to do that, and if you're not there, then you lose? Or is this something that you should be wary of and try and avoid or come up with an alternative? Yeah. Keep on coming to blockchain because we need to use that to make that reality. <laughs> but uh, no, the, I think it goes back to the question, well, what's the service you're offering to your customer? Is your customer helping to, to tease out, you're giving the information so you know who your customer is, where they want to go, how they use the different tools to, to aggregate that information. You know, the to me, the, the booking process of that is just transactional and commodity-based elements of that. So, you know, do you exist? Is that your customer making that easy? Well, what part of that is? So it's, if you go back to the customer is ultimately it's the experiential element of that. So it could be, I'm going to help find these locations and make that, and that's what I'm going to get paid for. Or it's ultimately to make that experience happen. And so ultimately it's working through that. And you've got, whether that customer comes through some automated, chat, Expedia, booking, whatever else. I mean, that's all going to be done by a bunch of different ways. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to make the, when, the, when that customer is actually in that experience is going to be there. So it's possible that we'll continue to have companies will refine what they really exist. And it's just goes back to plumbing and piping, right? You know, this is, we're just extending to what that is done more in an automated way. Yeah, I guess I, I makes total sense. And, and I'll give you this sort of setup too, Jason. Um, more specific to a domain you've spent a lot of your career and not all of it, part of your career in, which is, you know, during COVID, every restaurant became incredibly dependent on DoorDash and Uber Eats and these platforms. The challenge is they were expensive for the restaurants, but look, in that case, they had to. They just had no choice. They didn't have their own app. They didn't have their mobile ordering service. They had to use it. What they've realized since is like that's pretty painful to A, pay some larger origination fee to somebody else, um, to have all the coordination, but then most importantly, they don't get any of the customer information they used to have when they did it themselves. And so now you've seen them trying to push back into the space where they source the customer themselves. They might still use um, Uber Eats or DoorDash for fulfillment, but they want you to come in through their owned platforms as opposed to some third party. Do you imagine this going the same way? Is there something that those restaurants would do differently now if they could or anything else you might add to this topic? Well, I'm going to back up before I'll come back. Let me come back to that question sure. and back up, you know, your question around like, what would you advise companies to do? I mean, I would still advise them to focus on like, where do you uh, add value and, you know, for your customers and, and how do you drive both revenue and costs and look at what are the strategies you have to do that? And then look at how AI can improve those things, cutting costs or driving traffic or, or whatever. What I wouldn't do is associate AI with, chat GPT or some other large language model, right? There are many AIs out there and, you know, we're many 
I think decades away to any type of general AI. So using these kind of point solutions, right? If, if it's computer vision to read invoices and save order entry time, look at doing that. If it is a chat interface to order, right? Okay. Well, that's great. Look at that. Now, your question is like, well, do you have the people go to the chat or do they integrate it through their own app? I don't know. Either way. Okay. Now your point is like, well, if you did it one way, you get disintermediated and another way you don't, maybe that's a commercial discussion, right? Can you share the data? People, Uber Eats shares the data with people sometimes, you know, in, and you can always work around that. I mean, I think what you do want to have is a seamless, like regardless of whether you come to, to someone's mobile app to do it or chat GPT or, you know, and to use the restaurant example, do it in the drive through You want that to be like a seamless thing where if I then go back later and look, I see all of those things together. Now that data sharing again, I think is what you're bringing up. I think that's possible. You just have to think through that. And then what you can't uh, think, try to think through it afterwards. That needs mm-hmm. to, to be something you need to think through up front is, is the data access, privacy, security, all of these things we always talk about. Yeah. No, I, I do think it's, it's just a difficult problem. Like if I'm Expedia and, and they're one of the people who sort of launched early on one of these, on these plugins, that feels like a really dangerous move to me. And I'll tell you why, because while it seems great right now and they're getting a great press for it and they're going to get some additional bookings from them, I'm, I'm sure they'll get some additional bookings. How long until chat GPTs or open AI or whatever the new <laughs> for-profit entity, whatever they're calling that thing takes off and says, you know what? I don't need to pay you some intermediary fee. That's ridiculous. I'm just going to go talk to American directly and we'll source and originate ourselves. We already understand the recommendations and the revenue models. We also understand like what is good, what is bad. Like we're providing more services than you even give us. So we'll just do it ourselves. I, I just don't know why they wouldn't eventually get there. Um, now they might be contractually bound not to for some amount of time, but again, this is a very dangerous thing that I'd be hyper aware that you're doing two things. One, you're losing information about your customer and you might get it back. But again, if customers by default go to chat GPT to do booking from now on, it doesn't matter what, if you stop providing that service, they'll figure it out and they don't come to you anymore. And then two, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say that I don't think that necessarily, like, first of all, I think that's the natural evolution of all new technologies. There's, we always use them and then that how we use them evolves and changes. But I don't think that it necessarily means you do lose data. For example, I go to chat GPT and book an airline. Well, I'm going to put in my frequent flyer number. So they're going to know that I made it and like, they're not losing any information. Expedia will though, yeah. is my point. Like again, and like there's no reason that chat GPT in the future couldn't go source that directly from American and Southwest, just the same way that Expedia has historically. Right. I think there are some, businesses you know that that's the travel agency problem right right? the travel agencies get disintermediated yes and so again like if you're a travel agency i don't know that we want to be giving my information to expedia back in the day and today if i were expedia i don't know that we would be wanting to give my information over to chat gbt yeah i thought you were talking more about the airlines i think the airlines will be fine i don't think i think their commercial models already adapted to the idea although i will note that airlines have spent a lot of energy trying to get people to come to their websites directly, mm. right? Like they give you the lowest fare, they'll give you bonuses, they'll let you check bags. They don't really want you going elsewhere. Um, so they've been trying to get people back too. So it's a, I think there's a big difference if you're a, I'll use the term aggregator versus service provider, right? If you're an airline or a hotel, that's very different than if you're Expedia or Kayak. 
you know, they're just aggregating and, and re- passing along, you know, the, the bookings. Those, I do think you're right. Those, those type aggregator businesses may be very ripe for disruption with some of the, these technologies and the large language models where I think the service providers are, are fine. Yeah. And I think that it goes back to that point. The aggregator point is what I was making before too, which is in my, in my mind, the right application of AI is when you are aggregating lots of information, lots, lots of customers to provide sort of an outcome based solution. And I think that's exactly what they're doing so well with, with, chat GPT specifically. So anyway, that was the first point. The second point that I was going to make is don't forget that you're giving all of this data back to chat GPT, meaning they can make the models better. They can do a better job understanding who you are and what you want, giving you better service long-term. And so just be aware of it's core to your business. If you currently an aggregate aggregator, you're giving a huge amount of knowledge to all of your competitors because as chat GPT gets better, any other competitors going to benefit from you being on that platform as well. And of course, ChatGPT will itself get better, which again, if they go to disintermediate later on, that could be a problem for you too. Overall though, I think you have to figure it out because it is going to be, to your point, customers are evolving, their expectations are changing, and they're going to have to figure out a new way to deal with that, no doubt. Any closing thoughts from either of you? Yeah. Not today. I just want to, can't wait till we do the next podcast on blockchain. So let's get that scheduled again. (laughs) Maybe meta too, while we're at it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all for listening. For those who would like to learn more, please visit the insights page at codero.com. This is Vincent Meade, the Chief Data Science and your host. Thanks for listening. Join us again.